I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. The question right now is, did God create evil? Um, If not, then where exactly did evil come from? What really is evil anyways? That's an interesting thing to think about. And what does this verse mean right here where the scripture says, let me put it up for you, in Isaiah 45 verse 7, it says, there it is, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And this is a verse I've heard quoted um, by Christians and by non-Christians to suggest that God actually created, made evil, like moral evil was, was, is something that was brought into existence by God, by an act of his creation. And so we're going to talk about this today in the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I do this every week on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. right here on YouTube, although the same content is going out not only on YouTube, uh, but it will also be going out to uh, various locations on podcast, um, on uh, on my BibleThinker.org website, and then eventually up on Facebook and all that other stuff. So hi to everybody who's following on those other platforms. And uh, maybe one day you'll be the only platform if YouTube ever decides they don't like me anymore. <laughs> we'll see. But I've, uh, I've fed the cats, and I got my, uh, my, my cup of decaf coffee right here, and I'm ready to go with you guys tonight. We're going to talk about Christian things, uh, thinking clearly about the Christian worldview, uh, clearly teaching and defending biblical truth. That's my thing, and I'm inviting you on this journey with me as I do this weekly, putting prep and study into the different topics that we, uh, that we decide to tackle. So uh, it's so good to be here with you guys. Um, Thank you for those of you who joined me. I'm just blown away, to be honest, if I can say this before we get into the, to the meat of the discussion today. I'm blown away by the number of people that every week want to jump online and look forward to doing this stuff with me as I tackle things that, let's be honest, some people think are too boring to think about. And uh, for, for those of us, if you're like me, you think it's too important not to think about. Uh, this stuff is, is wonderfully important, and so we should be talking about it and thinking about it. So let's look at the passage and let's go through the verse. We'll start with Isaiah 45 verse 7. We'll unpack the concept. We're going to look at Hebrew and what this word means in Hebrew. Then we're going to answer some of those other questions like where did evil come from and all that other sort of sort of stuff. At least I'm going to give you some answers. I'm not going to pretend to answer every question about evil um, as if I could do that. But I'd like to give you some direction that I think is biblical and helpful. Hmm. If you have questions, you can put them in the live chat, put a capital Q at the beginning of your chat so that we know that that's one of our questions. We'll gather some of those and I'll try to answer them after I get through the meat of this topic. And those who are watching online, you can always um, listen to like two thirds of a video and you get all the teaching portion because the Q&A is at the end. If if you have time constraints, you can know that when you look at how long a video is. Okay, so here we go. What exactly are we talking about in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7? I form the light and create darkness, I make peace, and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. What exactly is this passage talking about? Well, the first thing we need to do is we have to realize that the Bible was not written in English. Um, it was written in, in multiple different languages, but the, the, the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew. And so what is this word in Hebrew? Well, it's this little word right here on your screen. It's pronounced something like ra, okay? And it's It's a word that we translate evil, but of course, it's not an English word. It has its particular Hebrew usage, and we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. So let me go through some of the resources that I used, digging up, doing some research on this topic. Uh, One of them was the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains. 
And this this uh, particular resource, it actually gives us 12 possible uses, different connotations of this word, ra. It gives 12 different uses of the word. Some of them are things like bad, fierce, sad, or troubled. Those are four of the uses, bad, fierce, sad, or troubled. And in particular, when it says fierce, it means um, pertaining to that which can harm or injure an object. Keep that in mind. It could mean a reference to something that can harm or injure. Well, so that's a little different than what you might have been thinking about at first when you saw I create evil. What is that referring to? Well, one of the uses is that which causes harm. All right, another resource I looked at was uh, Brown Driver Briggs. And this is a Hebrew and English lexicon. Um, and it offers another a range of meaning, another resource to just say, look at here right on the page on page 948 of Brown Driver Briggs. It says evil, distress, misery, injury, calamity, calamity. If, you, if, if you're old enough to know what that word means <laughs> or, or you read enough to know what that word means. And so we've got we've got this range of meaning in a word. It doesn't mean the word means all of those things all the time, but how a range of meaning works, um, it, it's referring to you know, the different possible usages, usages of a word. It could mean any of these things, but not all of them. Um, okay, so the next resource I'll show you is the Lexham Analytical Lexicon of the Hebrew Bible, and it shows many different uses of the term as well. And one of them, relating exactly to the passage we're in, Isaiah 45, verse 7, one of them is this, calamity, as in an event, something that happens that is calamitous. And I'll read to you right out of the, uh, the the resource itself. An event resulting in great loss and misfortune. And then, like many of these lexicons do, it offers example passages where this is the usage of the term. An event resulting in great loss and misfortune. Isaiah 31.2 and Isaiah 45 verse 7. So here, the uh, the writers of the lexicon are, are going to go ahead and step out and say, we're confident the meaning of evil or ra in this exact passage, Isaiah 45, 7, is of an event resulting in loss and misfortune. Let me give you one more, one more resource. And this is the uh, theological word book of the Old Testament. By the way, I, I don't own all these resources. I uh, Well, I do. I guess I own them. I have them on Logos Bible Software, which I have a link down below if you're interested in getting Logos Bible Software. And that link can get you 10% off. Um, uh, but there's a free version and all that. If if you're like committed though, I will say this. If you're committed to like, I really, really, really want some nice resources and can't afford to just buy everything. What I did was I just bought one package that was a great package that had, you know, Hebrew and Greek and that kind of thing and um, have been using it for like 13 years. And so, and it's it's been good for me because so, people ask me all the time about the software I use. Um, okay, so the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament says, one finds that Ra denotes physical injury, Jeremiah 39, 12, or times of distress, Amos 6.3, and the famous verse, Isaiah 45.7, I bring prosperity and create disaster, but mostly denotes unethical or immoral activity. Now, I, I don't want you to miss what I'm, what I'm reading here. Now, my, my point is going to be, I'm going to shrink this just a bit. My point is going to be that, um, that in the passage, Isaiah 45.7, it doesn't mean evil like what you're probably thinking of. Moral evil. It means rather hardship. Uh, bad times, times of distress, when things go wrong in life, that kind of thing. And that's what these are consistently telling us, these lexicons. However, I want to acknowledge the fact that generally, ra, what it generally means is moral evil. That is the normal use, of, but not the only use of the word. 
uh, yet there's textual indications as that there's these other different usages and one of them is definitely Isaiah 45 7. So let's look at the context because that's the next step in our in our study of this passage. Isaiah 45 verse 7. We looked at the word. We've seen how Hebrew resources tell us that this is probably talking about um, calamity um, or hard times, not a moral evil. Uh, but now let's look at the actual context of the verse itself. I'll start with the very verse itself without reading anything else, right? I form the light and create darkness. Now, do, do you notice the beginning of that passage? It gives us a contrast. This is what you want to observe as you're studying the Bible. You want to read and think about what they're communicating to you. I form the light and create darkness. These are two contrasting ideas. And then he says, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So light and darkness, they're a fair contrast. Peace and evil, well, how is moral evil, the, the contrast of peace, which is actually shalom in, in the Hebrew there? Um, well, it's, it's not really. What's the contrast of peace would be like that idea of war or, you know, distressful, distressing times. That's the idea. So even the, even the contrast pushes you towards that understanding of Ra as being uh, distress. The, um, there's there's more here, which is kind of interesting stuff. Um, this passage, Isaiah 45, is actually written and addressed to Cyrus. Cyrus was a pagan king who did not believe in the God of Israel. At least, at least uh, it, you know, we have no reason to think he ever believed in the God of Israel during his his time. He may have had some kind of respect for for God after finding out about Isaiah 45. But he says, "Thus says, thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus." So God calls out this king, you know, years before he's born. He says, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him and will loosen the loins, loose the loins of kings to open before him the two levied gates and the gates shall not be shut. Um, these, this, this idea is, hey, Cyrus, you don't know me, but I called you before you were born. I knew who you were and I planned out your life. And you think that these other false gods, these pagan gods are the ones supplying you with victory. But it is me, the sovereign God of the universe, who has provided the whole setup of your life. And he's going to use Cyrus to bring his people back, the people of Israel back from captivity. And so God is separating himself out. And you can read through the passage and you'll see he's separating himself out from these pagan gods. And God's taking credit for all the sovereign actions of the world. And he's giving no credit to the false pagan gods. So that's an interesting thing. In fact, um, he contrasts light and darkness before this. We see that light and darkness. There's a little bit of a debate on what does he mean when he says, I form the light and create darkness? Is this a reference to creation like Genesis, perhaps? But it could also be a reference to what happens earlier in that same in that same uh, passage. In fact, just one verse earlier, he says, God says that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There's no one else. And so basically God's saying like, I, I, I control all the territory from the rising of the sun. In fact, later he says, I... I form light and create darkness. It may be him just claiming uh, sovereignty over all things, whereas they would have had different gods, one controlling day, one controlling night, one who gave peace and one who brought war. And God's like, no, 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 none of that. No, I'm God. I'm the one in charge of all things. And this is actually consistent with the overall flow of Isaiah, which is saying the same sort of thing. So in other words, the context supports the idea that God is claiming his sovereign power over the nations, even that don't believe in him, right? There aren't these God of this mountain, God of that nation, God of this people, but there is, he is the God of the universe of all creation. 
And um, that's a big deal there. But that word shalom in verse 7, that, that's a big key. I make peace because the contrast of evil is peace, meaning that it does not seem to be moral evil. So everything seems to be pointing in the way, in, in, the, in the direction that this verse is just radically misunderstood by people. And I say lots of people. I've heard pastors use this. Um, leaders use this to say that God created. Uh, pastors I respect even use this for this purpose. Um, I think this is a misunderstanding of both Hebrew and English. I'll get to the English in a second. But so it's, it's not what the Hebrew means. It's not what the context teaches. Stop preaching it that way. Please, my friends. Um, that's not the context. And uh, I think that it results from a confusion about what evil is and a bunch of other things as well. Uh, let's see. There's another uh, support passage I'll offer. And this is in Isaiah 41:23. How God is distinguishing himself as being the sovereign. And as he says, uh, speaking about these false gods. He says, show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. The idea is God's like, I challenge these, these fake gods to predict the future, to do something in reality that would demonstrate their power. It's not going to happen because only the God of Israel is real. Um, catch the pun there. The God of Israel is real. No, is that just me? Am I the only one that thinks that's funny? Um, all right, so... In Isaiah 45, God is following up on this. And he's not only saying these gods can't do it. He's saying, I can do it. I will bring peace and I will bring calamity. I will do both of these things. Now, there's further support in this that when the Bible talks about God causing bad things or evil, it's not talking about him causing moral evil to exist um, or causing people to do wicked things in some sort of deterministic sense. But in Isaiah 41, 23, no, is that the passage I wanted? No, I wanted Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3.38. It says, Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. And this is a, a rhetorical question. Um, I'm reading King James for a reason. I'll explain in about four minutes why I'm in the King James. But I'm in it for a very specific reason today. Um, so, out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. It's like an obvious yes to this. Yes, evil and good come from him. Um, but that word... Evil there, similar word, it's ra'at there, and it means basically the same kind of range of meaning as ra. And then it goes on in verse 39, Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Ah, so what evil is it talking about God bringing forth? Well, he's talking about punishing sins. Okay, so we're saying that like when a man goes into prison, you could say something bad happened to that man. Oh, it's bad you're in prison. Yeah, but it... Something evil didn't happen to you if you deserve the prison sentence. If you've really rightly earned it, then it's bad, but it's not evil in the moral sense. And that's the idea here. These are, this is not um, moral evil, but it, it is bad times. Uh, one more verse to support this is Job 2. And we know the story of Job. Job was um, uh, racked with all sorts of hardship and unimaginable pain. Um, there are major life lessons in the book of Job. That, um, that I feel like you have to reread it as you go through more trials in life to understand it better. But Job 2.10 uh, says, But he said unto her, Job speaking to his wife, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. And so this is where Job is saying, Hey, um, the evil that Job's, ta Job's talking about is the loss of children, the loss of lands uh, or of, of produce of his flocks and of his own physical health. Ultimately, 
is what he ends up losing all those things. And he's and he considers that evil. So this is just evil in the sense of bad times, not moral evil. Don't get me wrong. Bad times are are horrendous. They're horrific, but they are a different category of thing than someone like when of a tree falls down and, and, and lands on your a loved one of yours and kills them. It's different than if a man chopped that tree down on purpose to kill them. This is a different kind of thing, um, even though they have the same effect. So this leads us to the question and, and to why I'm in the King James Version. Um, why is this word translated evil in Isaiah 45, 7 in the first place? Like, what's the point? Um, let me bring bring you back over to my screen. And there we go. Now, why is it translated that way in the first place? And I think the answer to this is... Um, it's not, generally speaking. It's not translated that way. Um, very often, and usually when, when I hear skeptics who want to come against the Bible, they have to find specific translations to support their their you know usage of the term. Like they can't just pick any translation and go with it. And, and sometimes it's like the King James Version only works for them. And this isn't because anything's wrong with the King James Version. It's because English language changes over time. The English language changes. And we're like losing our English language. Have you noticed this? There's words that we just don't know the meaning of anymore. And for those who, who read more, you tend to have a bigger bigger vocabulary. But let's be honest, not, as, not enough people read anymore. And we're like losing our vocabulary so that we think evil always means moral evil. Whereas uh, those who are more rounded in their vocabulary will know that it does also mean, oh, something evil has happened to me. We don't mean like moral evil all the time. Or at least that's not how English was in the past. Now we're losing the meaning of some of our words. And so that's why newer translations don't do this. The, I'll, I'll give you some examples. In the ESV, in the ESV translation, it says, instead of um, I make evil or create evil, he says, I make well-being and create calamity. In the NASB, New American Standard, it says, causing well-being and creating calamity. In the NIV, I bring prosperity and create disaster. In the NRSV, I make weal and create woe. There's, there's an older word as well. Wheel, yes, W-E-A-L. You can look it up. In the NLT, it says good times and bad times because that's how the NLT rolls. In the CSB, it says I make success and create disaster. In the NET Bible, the Net Bible, it says brings about peace, creates calamity. And finally, the New Century Version says I bring peace and I cause troubles. None of them, none of them use the word evil because they just thought it wasn't the best English representation of the Hebrew in that, in, that, uh, in that case. So I think that answers the question of Isaiah. But I think it raised, this, this topic raises up other concerns. So before I go to your guys' questions, um, which will still be a few minutes out, but I've already got uh, a bunch in here already. So um, let's ask this question because this question comes up naturally. Who made evil, right? It, if God didn't make evil and, and God made everything, right? Then, then who made evil? Like, from whence comes evil? That's confusing. It's confusing, though, because I think we have a wrong concept of what evil is. See, without thinking about it, a lot of people think that evil is like some kind of stuff that has to be made. That's like this invisible goop that sort of attaches itself to certain people. Or certain situations or certain cats or dogs you know <laughs> dogs evil like that's they got the thing on it and who made the thing like if that thing hadn't attached itself to me it wouldn't i wouldn't have it wouldn't have been evil but this is like a really weird understanding of evil 
I mean, evil's it's something, but it's not like like a thing, like a material thing, or like an abstract object, if you even know what that is, right? It, it, I don't think we should think of it like that. Um, so I've heard some illustrations to help explain this, and I'll give you a couple of them for whatever they're worth. And one of them, this comes from uh, Greg Kokel in Standard Reason. He says, um, evil, evil, evil can, be cared, can be compared to a donut hole. And by donut hole, he doesn't mean those little yummy round donut holes that you eat. He means the hole inside of a donut. And he says, what's a donut hole? I mean, it's not something you make. It's not something you create. It's not even a thing. It's just an ab It's just like a space in the donut where there's no donut, right? It's, it's the absence of donut. It's a, it's a sad place to be, um, <laughs> the, the donut hole. Or he refers to it as perhaps like a shadow. You know, when I'm standing and I cast a shadow, what is my shadow? It's not like Peter Pan where my shadow can come to life and run around and has a personality. I mean, my shadow is not actually a thing. Um, it's it's in my shape, but it's not really a thing. It's just the absence of light. It's just there's less light in that spot. And so it creates a shadow by contrast. Okay, it's like a negative image of, of, my, of my physical being or something. And so we can look at evil is, is, is like this. Moral evil is like this. It wasn't created at all. It was... It, it, it was not it doesn't need to be created because it's not a, the kind of thing that has to be made or created and there's another way to look at it too um by contrast the opposite then of moral evil now we're talking not talking about calamity here we're talking about moral evil the opposite of that would be good would be moral good well where did moral good come from well good's not like a goop either good is a, is a quality I, I i think of evil as a quality i don't know if that's the best term for it but that's like how it works in my brain here i think of it as a quality and i think of good as a quality as well but but where did this quality come from well it didn't come from anywhere it's it's just part of god's very nature it's part of god's actual makeup god is good that's like who he is god is good and because he is good there is such a thing as goodness so that's where good comes from. I mean, it doesn't actually come from anywhere because it's as eternal as God is because God is good. He is the good. So God didn't create good. He just is good. And then if anything were to be opposed to that good, to act, uh, you know, not in concert, not in harmony with the goodness of God, well, then there is evil. So evil, then, it doesn't need to be created. It needs to be permitted, which is a very different kind of thing. And for this, we, we get different categories of evil. This, this might help some people. There's different kinds of evil. I'm talking about moral evil here, not natural evil. Moral evil, uh, in some ways, is just largely a part of what it, what it means to have free will. God's perfectly good. He will never do anything wrong, right? But he, he makes something other than himself that has a mind and a will. And he allows that being to make choices. And those choices, by nature of it being a free will, those choices can go against God's goodness. And so the first person to act evil wasn't God. I mean, it would have been Satan. It would have been Adam, Eve. It would have been humankind. But they didn't create evil, like in, like like br bring it into existence out of nothing, like by an act of creation. But rather they did behaviors that had evil qualities because of their contrast to God, who is good. Now, I mean, I hope that this helps, but the point is that goodness is, 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 a, is a permanent feature of reality because God is good. Evil is the result of free will because God allows us to make choices that go against that goodness. That's moral evil. 
Um, then there's natural evil. This we're referring to calamity, tornadoes, disease. And there's a in the Bible. I'm not going to be able to cover these in in detail today, but I'll just mention them since I'm on this topic. Um, there's a variety of causes for this in Scripture. Sometimes it's judgment on sin. Um, we see that consistently. That that um, you know terrible things happening in life can be judgment on sin. We see this in the Old and the New Testament. Um, we also see sometimes it's spiritual warfare, like in the book of Job. Um, it's just spiritual warfare. Then we have another example. Um, in other words, Job didn't do anything to, des to deserve what he had gone through. There, he didn't do something to earn that thing, um, but rather it's the result of what was going on spiritually. Then there's another example, though, um, of it being the, a, a greater good kind of situation. This is a really interesting example in John 9 of why these sort of calamitous events happen. And so in John 9, re read this and, and listen, they're trying to figure out why this guy was born blind. Blindness would be seen as like a calamity thing, right? It's, it's, it's a bad life experience, but it's not, I wouldn't see it as a moral evil, but a natural evil. So in John 9, 1, they're trying to figure out why was this guy born blind? What's the cause? So, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth and his disciples asked him saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this, uh, this man sinned, nor his parents, but that his work, the works of God should be made manifest in him. What? The, nobody sinned to cause the blindness. Not that nobody has sinned in his life. He sinned, his parents have sinned. But it's not the cause of the blindness. The blindness is simply for the greater good of the works of God being manifest in his life. That's interesting. This is an, a specific example from the New Testament of, of a greater good defense of natural evil. The man's born blind and God has in his sovereignty a plan to use it for a greater good. Now, of course, that man was healed by Jesus and he, God glorified himself through that and used it to proclaim the name of Christ. And, and, um, and we look back and we say, okay, so God is sovereign and God is using it. And in Christianity, with all of the trials of life, with all of the pains and the anguish and the unimaginable suffering, we see that God is sovereign and God is using it for some good end, which he doesn't explain to me. I don't know the good end. And I, it's, almost, it's almost a bad idea to be in tough situations and try to figure out what the, what the solution is going to be, how God will use it for good. Um, it's almost a bad idea because we're just, we're so myopic, we're so short-sighted that we can't really see the results of what's going on. So we're in that place of trusting in God's character, right? God's promises, because we don't know how to work through the suffering and the things that we're seeing uh, at the moment, but we trust he will use it for his glory. Um, now, God also promises he's going to make it right. And there's this glorious future in the end where we live in eternal bliss and we have permanent reward and permanent character development and permanent um, uh, benefit from the suffering of this temporary time. And so from that perspective, I think we won't even need to have that place of like faith in the sovereignty of God. We will have actually experienced, you know, in a very real way, the benefit of all that suffering. And now you may or may not agree if you're not a Christian, but at least you can understand these categories, these different categories, moral evil, natural evil, the different causes, and some of what the scripture says about the solutions. I put a video in the description from uh, Inspiring Philosophy that goes through the problem of evil, which is actually not what I'm doing today. I'm not trying to tackle the problem of evil and, and its emotional implications and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, Inspiring Philosophy did a fantastic video on this topic, and I've linked it down below, so you're welcome to check that out. Um, now... What I wanted to cover as well, since I'm on the topic of evil, is the euthyphro dilemma. Well, what's, what's the euthyphro dilemma? 
Well, this is just one of those things that inevitably comes up when we talk about the problem of evil or we talk about um, just God and evil. Um, it goes like this. By the way, a dilemma. A dilemma is you have to pick between these two options. There's only two options. That's a true dilemma. A true dilemma has only two options. You have to pick one and suffer the consequences or pick the other and suffer those consequences. So here's the dilemma. And it's it's from 400 years before Christ, the Euthyphro dilemma. Uh, I think it was a conversation between Socrates and Euthyphro was the idea. Um, and it goes like this. Is something good because God wills it? Or does God will something because it's good? That's the dilemma. Why is something good? Now, if you say something's good because God wills it, well, or commands it, then it's like arbitrary because God could will for us to hate and abuse people. He could will that every time you see a five-year-old, you have to stab him with a fork like that. He could will that. And it's, so it seems arbitrary. So morality, this is, I'm presenting the dilemma as the skeptic would Morality, therefore, is meaningless. Morality is just orders from God. It's like might makes right. Um, God has power, so you have to do what he says. But there's no like, nothing undergirding that morality. Nothing, nothing establishing the goodness of good. That's the first horn of the dilemma. The second horn of the dilemma is, or you say, oh, well, God wills things and commands them because they're good. Well, but now you have a different problem. Now you, you have something outside of God and that thing outside of God is good. And God's conforming to that thing outside of God. So morals and values, moral values and duties, they exist apart from God. And some would say, well, then we don't even need God to establish or ground moral truth. So there's the dilemma. There's the dilemma. Um, now, is this a real dilemma? That's the first question you have to ask when you hear something like this. And the bottom line is the Euthyphro dilemma, while it may seem like a, I mean, it's a, it's a philosophical question that comes up in every philosophy class on the topic, but it's not a true dilemma. There aren't just two options here. There's a third option that exists within Christianity, within the kind of beliefs we have that wouldn't ex have existed at the time of Euthyphro, at the time of Socrates. Um, I don't remember if Euthyphro was a real guy or, a, or, a, or just like a, a sparring partner. They would do these things where they had fake people they were having conversations with, and I don't recall. Um, but is it a real dilemma? No, it's not a real dilemma. The solution is option three. God wills things and they're good because God is good, right? God is the grounding of goodness. God himself is goodness. And it is in that context that the things he wills are good. The things he commands require obedience. Um, it's all grounded in who God is, not something outside of him. It doesn't become good because he wills it, which would be like whatever that means. Um, and it's not outside of him and he's conforming to some external kind of good. God is good. Like scripture says, God is good. He just is good. You are, do, you are good. You do good things, the scripture says. Um, now, some people just have a small view of God. Uh, so they, they don't realize that when we say God is the grounding of all good, we mean he is good, like the good. And everything else that's good is good by comparison to him or evil by, com by contrast with him. Now, the reason why the Euthyphro dilemma went for so long, I think part of the reason is because they weren't dealing with a Christian understanding of God back when the Euthyphro dilemma came up. A lot of people don't realize this, but um, Plato, Socrates, these guys, they weren't dealing with theism in the sense of like Judeo-Christian beliefs. They were dealing with 
finite gods, little, you know, we colloquially say these little G gods, God with a little G. This is like a God who's petty, a God who steals or who rapes or who, who kills because he's irritated um, through no, for no other reason than he's just being frivolous, uh, being malicious. Um, these were unreliable sinners. God, they were basically sinners. These were these little gods. They weren't these eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful, perfect, loving, divine beings, you know, which there could only be one of, right? It wasn't just this one amazing God. It was these little, little G-gods. So it's fair to ask Euthyphro's dilemma of a little G-god. It just completely breaks down when you ask it of the God of reality, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity. So um, it's interesting how this problem comes up over and over again. And, and it's good for us as Christians so who are Christians that are listening to be aware that the Euthyphro dilemma is not a dilemma for Christians. It, it's a dilemma for pagans. Uh, it's a dilemma for those who believe in these, these other uh, lesser deities that are, you would call deities, but it's, they're so different than God, they just cannot be compared in any way, shape, or form in even concept to who God is. And so the dilemma falls apart. Um, so in short, before I go to your guys' questions, God is the source of goodness. Therefore, evil can be real by contrast to God's goodness, but it doesn't have to be created, right? And, and on a side note, God's commands, we should obey those commands, that's, but that's because of who he is, uh, not just because he has power to command. It's because it's all grounded in his goodness. So God's the source of goodness. God has reasons for allowing the evil, the moral evil to exist and the natural evils, whether it's free will, greater goods that God's accomplishing. And, um, and again, there's that IP video down in the description, which I think would be uh, worth watching if, if this is something you want to pursue more information on. And then finally, God is the solution to the evils that are going on in the world. God is the solution. And uh, um, yeah, so I'm going to go to your guys' questions. That's my spiel for today. So let's dig in. Um, by the way, I, oh, I almost forget to mention these things sometimes, but a couple, a couple of quick announcements before I take my first question. Um, uh, we have the Bible Thinker mugs available still, and there's a there's a link in the description, or you can go to um, Brent Zockel, uh, his website zockelpottery.com, z-o-c-k-o-l-l, zockelpottery.com, and there's the mugs there. If you want to get your Bible Thinker mug, you're welcome to do that. Um, a lot of people are excited about these, so I just want to make sure you know that they're available. Also, if you want to support this ministry, um, you don't have to. Nobody has to. Feel no obligation. Like Feel free to just enjoy and be blessed by this material. Um, that's the goal. That's the point. But there are some who are going to say, Mike, I so support your ministry, and I want you to keep doing it. And your support means the world to me. And also, it literally is making this happen. And those who are supporting, I know that you're sharing in the in the treasure, the heavenly treasure that's uh, happening with this ministry. God's been blessing it um, so much right now. On a bad day, we, we have over you know 10,000 uh, views across the videos on, on, on my YouTube channel alone. And then there's the podcast and the website and things like that. So the Lord's really blessing it. Um, okay. Oh, and there, there's a link down below for that if you want to give. Or you could go to BibleThinker.org. That's the website. And I have um, uh, support options up there for you. Okay, so I have a question, and this is from uh, someone who's either in Russia or Ukraine. I cannot pronounce your name, so I won't try, but it starts with an A. And the question is, what is sin unto death? Um, and this is, this is actually a passage in um, 1 John where he says, um, if anyone sins, um, you know, I'm just going to take you there because we'll go ahead and read it. Um, I like to make sure I have everybody with me here on these. Sorry, just a moment. Let me pull it up in the software. 
and oh, I like to put it up on your screen as well. And here it is. So it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for him. Pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Um, so it seems to me that there are two, and, and I'm, this is just my opinion, okay? I encourage you to do your own research and your own thoughts on this. My opinion is there's two options for how to understand it. And it kind of seems to me like it hinges on what the word death means. And so it could mean physical death or spiritual death. Okay, so if it means physical death, then sin unto death would mean somebody who is um, either unrepentant, they're just going to sin till they die. They're never going to turn from those sins, in which case it could be a reference to um, just unrepentant sin. Um, or perhaps it could be a reference to sin, which is um, dangerous. They're, they're sinning in ways that, uh, that that's that's literally going to bring death to them, either through God's judgment or through this, the natural consequences of their sin. That's a possibility um, if it's a sin unto death in that sense. Now, if it's a spiritual death, then the sin unto death, it seems, would refer to the, like the denial of Christ, um, apostasy, like that kind of thing. Like you're just, you're turning your, your back away from Christ, that kind of thing. So we would have sort of like the believer struggling with sin. And then we have someone who you look at and you go, I, I think you're, you've abandoned Christ. Uh, whether you, you know, whether I know your exact condition or not, this seems a sin unto death to me. Um, so there's a couple options for how to understand this passage. I'll admit I'm not, I'm not confident on exactly how I would take it. And I, I do wonder, sometimes I feel like I go back and forth on it. Um, but that hopefully is something to think about. Um, second, Squagagi, Squagagi, that's an interesting name. It says, what if people say God is to blame because he gave us a wicked heart? Um, well, I mean, in a sense, um, one could simply say this. Um, you're, you're, you're shaking your fist at God. Um, that's stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry to put it that way. There's an element of, of um, let's suppose... You know, X, Y, Z is the scenario. Let's suppose that I sin because God gave me a wicked heart, which I, I, I don't think that that's a correct representation of reality. But let's suppose it was. And my result is, even though God wants to cleanse me of my wicked heart, even though God has also provided salvation and forgiveness, even though God has is, is willing and is provided to transform my heart, to make me into his image and give me glory for all eternity, I am yet so mad that, that the initial start of my life was in falling into sin, that I'm, I'm going to shake my fist at God and rebel against him. Um, I think that that is monument, uh, monumentously, is that the right word? Um, unwise. I think it's incredibly foolish to shake your fist at God. If ever you find that God and you were at odds, you're wrong. This is a no-brainer. It doesn't mean it's easy to swallow emotionally, but intellectually, it's a no-brainer. Uh, if me and God are in conflict, I'm definitely in the wrong here, even if I don't yet understand why. Um, on the other side, I will say um, there's an element in which um, we, through our specific choices to sin, we get the heart that we have paid for because of our choices throughout our lives. And so you will find this is true if you're honest with yourself. Uh, the sins that you have the biggest struggles with are the ones you chose to commit over and over and over again. And yet it seemed like the temptation wasn't so hard when you hadn't done it so many times. 
And I think that there's an element where it's like, I'm reaping what I sow and my own choices can't be ignored in this decision, uh, in this discussion. Um, the third question is from Ansley. Uh, what do you think of the channel Living Waters? As I've seen lots of people saying it's not biblical, what do you think? Um, I, I think it's great. <laughs> so um, An Ansley or Ainsley, uh, I think it's great. Um, Living Waters is fantastic. And it doesn't mean I agree with them on everything and they don't agree with me on everything. But I agree with them on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's where those same people are going to say I'm unbiblical. And I think the, the only thing I can think people say, I've heard people say negative about the gospel message presented by Ray Comfort and Living Waters, is that they say that people do need to repent. They don't say they have to, they are going to live sinlessly or they have to have this perfect kind of repentance where they never sin again. But they do preach the gospel with the idea of repentance. They don't see it as a work. They don't see, they see it as a turning of your heart and your attitude towards God away from sin, um, a changed attitude that results in, you know, fruit in your life. And I have a whole Bible study I did on this not long ago. Um, and it was, it was called, uh, must preach repent. That was the, the thumbnail and it was much, must preach repent. It was just a must preach repent. It was just a few weeks ago, like maybe a month ago or so, um, in the Mark series, uh, which is an ongoing series I'm doing verse by verse. So it's on my YouTube channel. You're welcome to check it out. I think people have misunderstood the meaning of repentance and then they have vilified those who preach that repentance is, is part of our preaching. Um, so, but yeah, I think that what's great about Living Waters is there's lots of conversations there that you can learn from. Just practical street conversations and you could like glean from it and learn and kind of put in your toolbox some of the things that you see them doing. Um, and uh, yeah, Euro, uh, Euro, I'll just say Euro says... Um, question, can you name three of your favorite books? Oh man, I'm so bad at favorites. Um, I don't have three favorite books to be honest with you. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to abstain. <laughs> I don't have three favorite books. Um, I tend to just like books for very specific reasons and purposes and that kind of thing. Um, and I tend to do most of my reading tends to be resource books, like the kind of thing that's boring to read, but is helpful for gathering data and information. Um, but I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. So Philippians, like, <laughs> I'll take the cop out. But yeah, I just don't have favorites, really. Uh, Caleb Broussard says, uh, hey, Pastor Mike. Hey, Caleb. Um, so often I hear the saying, you don't have to defend God's word. Let the lion out of the cage and it will defend itself. What's your take on that saying? Um, yeah, so... I think there's some validity to it, but I think that sometimes it's taken too far. Um, there's an element that's like, hey, you know, it's true that you as a Christian, you don't have to answer every question. You don't have to defend every possible idea in the Christian faith. You can just preach and just trust the work of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin, righteousness, judgment to come and let the gospel just be the power of God. I agree with that. I... I wholeheartedly agree with that, but that doesn't rule out the idea of using apologetics or giving a defense of the faith. And I think it's about wisdom and the leading of the spirit and you know, engaging individually with people. Um, I think that all of these are, are good things for us. I don't think we, we should never leave the gospel behind. We still preach the gospel, but apologetics is appropriate. And I've built a case for that. I have a video on um, uh, related to this um, called is presuppositional apologetics biblical. And the advantage of going through that video is you'll see I'm going through specific texts of scripture where apologetics or giving a defense of the faith, a defense of the Bible, of Christianity, where that's actually exampled in the Bible. Examples where the Bible gives 
a defense of the faith um, and has that as an, exa- as an example for us. Um, so let's see. I also have uh, David Masidi has a question. Did God create Adam and Eve perfectly or imperfectly? If they were perfect, they wouldn't have been tempted and brought in sin into the world, right? Well, let's say this, that this perfection question is specifically about, um, about the, um, the free will of Adam and Eve. So I believe Adam and Eve had actual free will. They had a, you read the text in Genesis, it it sure looks like they get to choose whether or not they're going to eat of that tree, which would be this one command God gave them, this one rule they shouldn't do, and it would give them access to the world of things they shouldn't do. Um, And they disobeyed that command. Now, at that point, they were imperfect, but is free will an imperfection? Or is the sin they, they, they committed with their free will? That's the imperfection. And I think that the, the latter is the case. Free will is, is, is not an imperfection at all. But what they did with it was an imperfection and caused, you know, that was the fall. And so I think that's how I would answer that question. Um, let's see. Uh, Nikki Boy Vids says, am I understanding that this verse in context is about God's rule, reign, and creation over all things? Does God meticulously rule all things like some determinists suggest about Proverbs 16, 33? Um, we're going to go to that verse. I think I know which one it is. Yep. Um, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Um, so the Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's not a book of, of uh, like these sort of rules. Not that there's never a rule in Proverbs, but there it's, it's a book of wisdom. It's a book of insights and wisdom. And this is something you have to understand with Proverbs. Okay, now when, when I look at that, the lot, the lot is cast in the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. If I was to take this um, in a completely like rule of life sense, well, then I would, be, I would be rolling dice every time I made decisions about everything, wouldn't I? Well, gosh, it's every decision is from the Lord. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll it. I'm gonna be like, should I go to work today? Roll the, roll the dice. Yes or no. Should I, uh, should I invest in this stock? Roll the dice. Should I marry that girl right there? Roll the dice. It's from the, oh, okay. Should I apply for that job? Should I go to this college? This is going to be, you know, a wrong interpretation of Proverbs 1633. But rather, I do think that this is consistent with the idea that God is the ultimate sovereign. And I, I, I tend to think of it like layers of sovereignty. Um, this is my own terminology. And perhaps there's something wrong with it. <laughs> But this, let me share it to you how I think about it. It'll give you something to think about. So here we have we have the earth and we have the decisions that we're making as humans. We have a certain realm of sovereignty here in our own lives, a certain amount of sovereignty. Um, above and beyond that, or perhaps mixed intermingled with that, uh, we have angelic beings, spiritual forces, and other people in our lives who are limiting our, our free decisions and uh, authorities like government and things like that that limit these things, bosses and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, beyond that, with all of those things going on, the nations and all the things that they're doing and, and, and uncontrollable things to us, like natural disasters, weather, stuff like that, um, you know, getting sick. Then we have God's ultimate sovereignty where he's allowing real free will choices to happen amongst all these different beings. Yet he has orchestrated reality in such a way and sometimes intervenes in such a way so that his ultimate goals will be accomplished in all of these these genuine free will choices that are happening throughout life. So I see this as God's God's sovereignty is that yeah, even though it might seem random, ultimately God is in control. 
This doesn't mean he's directly causing all things in a deterministic sense. I think that scripture seems to refute that. Um, you know, we look at the book of Job and we, we, we see that there's more going on. You know, they were thinking of God as deterministically causing all things. We see there's the spiritual realm going on that they weren't even aware of. Yet we still see God as sovereign above all that stuff. Um, we see Jesus saying, you know, woe to the man who betrays me. Like, it's a real choice. You could betray me. You could not betray me. And yet he says, but it's, it's going to happen. Um, it's still going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. But, but woe to the man. Because God's going to use the free will choices uh, for his ultimate goals. This doesn't mean he controls all of our free will choices. Um, so another question. This is from Judah Matthews. Uh, do you have any advice on how to use Greek or Hebrew resources responsibly? For those of us who don't know Greek and Hebrew, what are these resources? When are these resources appropriate? What are uh, common or easy mistakes to avoid? That's a really interesting question. Um, um, okay, well, here, let me give you a first tip. People go to Strong's. Strong's is a good resource, but it's a limited resource. So here's a tip for you. Strong's uh, Concordance is a limited resource. It doesn't actually give you like the full sem the semantic range or the full possible meanings of a word. It doesn't actually give you um, descriptions of its usage in different contexts or anything like that. What it gives you is a list of ways in which the word has been translated into the King James Version Bible. And so Strong's is like a useful but limited. And so I recommend looking at multiple sources um, rather than one source. Um, I, I, I looked up, like I did today, I, I looked up these definitions in multiple sources. Whenever you're treading on ground that seems unfamiliar to you, it's always good to get multiple resources and not just, not just one. Um, let's see, what, what else could help? Um, man, it, it can be tough. It can be tough. I have a little bit of knowledge of Greek and that help, that really helps me with studying Greek resources. Hebrew is a little bit more rough for me, so I work harder at that. Um, just checking translations. One really easy thing to do on the English side is you just check, check 10, 15 translations. You can do it for free on like things like uh, Blue Letter Bible or I think Bible Hub is a website. You can use lots of resources now to check 10, 15 different translations. And, it, and when you see this different translations translating the same word the same way, you can be fairly confident that's the correct way to translate it. When you see that they are have a lot of dif differences and disagreements on how to translate the word, then you can be alerted to the idea that the original language is presenting some challenges being brought into English here. So things like that, like some common sense kind of stuff, that helps as well. Um, but yeah, there's tons of free uh, Greek learning stuff online as well that you might just want to dig in. <laughs> It's, it's, it's not fun, but it can be rewarding. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's see this, this next question is from, uh, Jacob Seiler. Um, I'm sorry. I, I skipped one. It's from Doug L. Uh, the question is if Yahweh didn't create anything, would evil exist? Um, I don't think evil exists in the sense of it being a thing out there that exists. So I think I've made that clear in my video. So you might say, would evil be happening or would there be any people who had the quality, anything that has the quality of evil? And I, I think, no, I think, no, he doesn't, uh, it, there wouldn't be. And so this then leads to a discussion on the concept of the greater good or the, the, this, um, the ultimate good that God brings out of giving free will to creatures. And that, that's why I really recommend that inspiring philosophy video that's down below. Jacob Seiler says, can you cover only, uh, can you cover Israel only preterism in a video sometime? These people are atheists 
who have been infiltrating Christian debate groups and deceiving Christians on Facebook. Wow, that doesn't sound very good. Um, I do know some atheists enjoy getting a kick out of deceiving people and playing games and stuff like that. Um, I also know known some Christians who've, or at least people who name Christ who've done similar things. Um, but that sounds pretty terrible. Um, I don't know if that's on my radar right now, Jacob. I'm just to be honest with you. I'm sorry about that. Um, I'll give it some thought. Um, all right, this getting close to the end here. It's almost six o'clock, and I want to keep it under an hour. So, uh, Godgirl78 says, "How do we know what parts of the Bible is metaphorical and what part is literal?" Not sure if that's the correct wording of that question. Sorry, and thank you. Well, Godgirl78, um, I think that you let context tell you. And so what I did, like when we went to Proverbs is I said, hey, you know, I've looked at the whole book of Proverbs and the, the, the book itself is pithy wisdom sayings and wisdom sayings are not these hard, fast rules of life. And you can see this because of different contextual things. Basically, you look at the context. That's the idea. So one example I like to use is in Psalms, uh, which is a poetic source. That's poetry. Um, not that it doesn't have also narrative and things like that, but it's poetry. But it says, uh, David says, I, I make my bed swim with my tears. I make my bed swim with my tears. And I think it, just the visual of that, when you think about it, like, wait, so he cried so much that his room filled up with salt water, right? Tears. And his bed is swimming. Like it's like Beauty and the Beast, right? His bed's like swimming through the, <laughs> through the tears of his, of his crying. Okay, obviously this is hyperbole. This is poetry. So... It's obvious, generally speaking. So when you read other works, you can usually tell, oh, I'm reading a poem now. Oh, I'm reading, um, uh, you know, what genre I'm reading. I'm reading a, a narrative of, of, a, of an event. Uh, oh, I'm reading uh, didactic or teaching right here. This is plain teaching. Or that seems to be hyperbole. Jesus uses hyperbole a lot. But it's usually obvious when he's using it. So my encouragement to you is you just kind of slow down. You read the text and you look at it in context and you ask yourself, does it seem like it means it literally? Or does it seem like it means it? In a more metaphorical sense, uh, when you get the words like like or as, when you see those words, well, then that's obviously simile. Um, and so you, you have some help there. So just like kind of the normal stuff you learn in English class. In fact, English class is probably the thing that prepares you the best for reading the Bible. English or, um, or any sort of literature type stuff, because that's what you're dealing with in, in scriptures. You're dealing with written works. Um, so I think that's actually going to be the last... Uh, question, although um, I will answer this last one here. Okay, real quick. The question was, how many cats do you have and what are their names? Um, <laughs> so I have two cats, Mika and Moxie. Those are the two cats we have. And one of them is a big poofy. She's part Maine Coon, part who knows what. And she's just a giant poof ball. And the other one, Mika. Um, she's the gray and white one that always wants to play. <clears throat> so there's our, there's our, our cat story for you. Um, well... I uh, thank you guys so much for being with me and um, you can look forward to the next uh, video in the Mark series coming out next Monday as we continue to plow through Mark verse by verse, tackling tough, fun, insightful, encouraging issues. And <clears throat> next Tuesday, we'll be back on with the live stream. I won't make promises about what it'll be because I always end up changing my mind and getting derailed on things. But I pray it will help you think biblically about everything, build up your life. I pray this is a door that helps you walk towards Christ if you do not know him and that, um, that God just keeps uh, blessing this ministry. So thank you so much.